Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this week by Luminos. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my jet-lagged co-host, Jason Snell. What time is it, Stephen? What time? I don't even know. The Earth, the curvature of the Earth, how does it work? Uh, maybe, maybe that's a, a topic for a different time. Ah, uh, I think we've, yeah... I think we've I think we've covered how the Earth isn't flat, but yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm back. <laughs> if we've made it to 33 episodes and there's still people wondering about that, I feel like we've messed up. <laughs> yeah, we we failed as a podcast. Mm-hmm. So what's on tap for today? Uh, we have some pre-flight material as always, because you don't want to launch before you've done your pre-flight checklist. And then we have a a special guest. This one's a little different. Instead of talking to somebody who uh, works in the business of space or astronomy, we're going to talk to a, one of our colleagues, a journalist who is very excited about, um, a certain aspect of of space stuff and has written about it before. Glenn Fleischman, who is going to join us to talk about tiny satellites, tiny satellites so stay tuned for that but first let's uh let's do the pre-flight checklist so we spoke last time about juno how uh, the spacecraft has had some issues in the team <sighs> the team has not been able to put it into these tight science orbits around jupiter uh since then it seems like that's been kind of made official they're going to stay in these elliptical 53 53 day orbits for the foreseeable future um it's important to note, we may have glossed over this last time a little bit, but science can still take place. Like They can still capture images and take measurements uh, in their approach in these orbits. It's just not as continuous as it was, as it had been desired, right? Like it's, we have more downtime this way, but they can still measure, they can still take images, they can still collect the data that they are there to collect. Yeah, it sounds like, so, so, um, our former guest, Emily Lactawalla, wrote a piece about this on uh, her blog on Planetary Society. Uh, and I felt like there's some definitely some managing, managing of expectations here that it's unclear. It's unclear how long this is going to last. Um, uh, we'll put some links to the show notes articles about this. It's like at least until February, they're still looking at it. I think what they want to, to say is basically, you know, we're going to we can do science from here and if we're going to risk the spacecraft by trying to move into another orbit maybe we will not do that and right. do the science from here as long as we can until we either have confidence that we can move to a different orbit or until the risk and reward you know changes in some way right because if if they try this and the these valves don't open at the right time they could end up way off course they could end up right. crashing into jupiter or being too far out it's there's a lot of variable that doesn't <laughs> it's not what you want when you're executing a burn like this so i i not being a rocket scientist as the show mm-hmm. uh yeah we intro lay it right out there yeah <laughs> um none of us should be at this, this point this seems like the right way to go right if you can't guarantee the safety of the spacecraft and you can still get some work done it seems like a compromise that that makes sense at least at least for now but it's just the the patience aspect of it right that that instead of gathering this data quickly they have to gather it you know once in in the passes or every couple of months and that's uh and that's more frustrating but 
uh, you know, better. It's not like they aren't getting the data. They're just not getting it as quickly as they had hoped. Right. And there is a trade-off with this. So if they stay in this elliptical orbit, it is possible that Juno could last longer than anticipated. We're not using uh, as much fuel and the basically the, the lifetime of the spacecraft could be lengthened. But there is a, a issue in mid-2019, there's going to be an eclipse that would leave Juno in the dark for like 6 to 10 hours, which is longer than it is designed to be in the dark. Those big solar panels are there to collect energy, and it may not survive that amount of darkness. And so one article I read was talking about they're already working on on plans uh, for that mid-2019 event. You know, maybe, and I don't know, but maybe it works out where they stay in these elliptical orbits until then. And then in the run-up to that, they say, look, we've done a lot of work and we don't think we can survive this, so let's maybe try the burn. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know how it's going to play out, but um, if if Juno stays where it is now, it can work and it can, it can do what it's supposed to do, but there will be an issue in several years of uh, needing to, you know, uh, make uh, an adjustment somewhere. Right, right. Either to adjust just enough to uh, avoid that eclipse or or take a gamble, right? I mean, I think that the feeling is like, th- that's the risk-reward thing I was talking about earlier. At some point you say, okay, we're probably going to die uh, if we stay in this, in this orbit, so let's take a risk that will keep us around longer, even if it is risky. Um, that it's 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 going to be an interesting challenge, but they got time to make it. I mean, that's the beauty of it is this the, the this uh, insertion orbit, this fifty uh, three day orbit will let them do science, and uh, the rest of it will will work itself out one way or another. I think I I think we all still have hopes that they maybe will be able to figure this out and uh, go to a new orbit sooner. But um, I I totally understand the caution. Uh, let's talk about China a little bit. So. Uh, the Chinese space agency has been in the news a little bit recently. On November 4th, just a, a few days ago, it had a successful launch of the Long March 5 rocket, which is uh, China's largest lift vehicle. And this rocket's going to really unlock a lot of potential for China. So they're going to be able to launch additional co- components for their space station. We spoke about uh, the Tianyang space station, the series of space stations, really, uh, back in our, our episode about that. The core component is already there, but they will be able to launch additional modules and parts to attach to it starting in 2018. And this rocket is believed to be powerful enough to even to get Chinese astronauts uh, potentially to lunar orbit or to the lunar surface. So it's a big step forward for their their space agency. You know, it's a, it, it, even in reading about this, there's so little information and what information is there. It's so clearly like official government coverage right there it's not like the the rich ecosystem we have of of science journalism uh here i'm always struck by that but a big step forward and i think it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out because as we spoke about china is not part of the international space station uh program and there's no plans i believe to change that and so they're kind of on their own as far as doing anything in in orbit and this vehicle is going to allow, allow them to accelerate that process yeah, it's always nice to hear about China's program since we don't hear about it very often. And uh and uh yeah, they're still working on stuff, right? I mean, they're sort of like we don't care whatever <laughs> you other people are doing. <laughs> we're going to work on we're going to work on our own stuff. So, we'll see we'll see where they go. But it's cool. I've been seeing a lot of talk lately about um 
what's next after the ISS, which we should probably talk about in, a, in a, on a later show. That there are, um, it sounds like those conversations are happening. But again, until there are changes in uh, international relations, the Chinese are kind of off doing their own thing a lot of times. And the big problem is that the U.S. and China have this. Um, there's an act of there's a, a law basically that says that we can't do space things with China. So. Um, you know, there's uh, maybe things will change depending on uh, n- whatever happens in elections in the United States. Who knows? <laughs> uh, and this is all happening in the backdrop of a ongoing Chinese mission. And so, uh, in October, the, the space agency lost launched a 30 day mission. It's China's longest crewed mission to date. I think the previous uh, length was like two weeks. So that mission is still ongoing. Again, there's nothing about it on the internet except that it launched and it seemed to have been successful. Uh, that crew docked with the space station, their, the Chinese space station. They're performing experiments and and really laying the groundwork for future missions. Uh, so that that mission will will wrap up here in another week or so, a couple of weeks. But it's there's a lot of stuff going on, and I think it goes under the radar because of that that lack of coverage and just lack of communication. But they're definitely making progress and moving forward and, and following the path that has been uh, laid out by countries like the United States and, of course, Russia and the European Space Agency. You know, taking these steps of of having a small space station, expanding it, having longer crewed missions, larger crews, and just evolving things as they go. Well, and, and we've maybe talked about this before, but there's definitely been some speculation that the answer to the question that we've been asking since the 70s of who's the next person to set their uh, like the last line in Apollo 13 right who will who will those people be mm-hmm. who will that be to set foot on the moon again um, this may be the answer is uh, is the Chinese astronauts uh, the Taikonauts, um because that seems to be a goal of theirs and that would be quite an achievement to to get their people to the surface of the moon. I think so. Uh, you know, they've got some plans for uh, a lunar rover and some some other robotic missions. So lots of stuff going on. All right, Jason, uh, we're going to talk to our buddy Glenn. But first, you want to tell us about our sponsor this week? Sure. This episode of Liftoff brought to you by our good friends at Luminos uh, from Wobbleworks. Luminos is an app. It combines the most advanced astronomy features that you can find on mobile devices with some really great craftsmanship. Uh, These are very proud iOS developers. They know what they're doing. So whether you're a serious astronomer all the way down to somebody who is a casual enthusiast who's trying to get... uh, their friends and their kids in t- into astronomy. Um, Luminos is the app for you. It's got a huge catalog of stars and deep space images, and also it has these great visualization tools, lets you fly to a, a comet or land on the moon. Uh, I don't know if they have a draft feature yet, but maybe they'll get some some probe and, and moon draft features at a later time. Uh, you can simulate a solar eclipse. The, all of these things uh, help make uh, exploring space from the comfort of Earth fun. There's support for meteor shower information, satellites, telescope mount control. It's all in the one app. There aren't extras. You buy this app and you get all the stuff. It's built on an advanced simulation engine that's been uh, in the making for more than 10 years. It's continually optimized for the newest features of the iPhone, the iPad, and even the Apple Watch. And best of all, Luminos has all of the stuff. No ads, no in-app purchases. Like I said, you buy it, you get it, you keep it. That's it. And it's updated all the time. Wobbleworks continues its tradition of free feature updates with a new version, 9.1, adding beautiful translucent terrain 
multiple sky orientations, a stunning model of Comet 67-P. I like the slash in that comet. I don't know if that means the comet like got cut or something. I don't know <laughs> how comets are named. There's a whole episode there. Um, it's got Planet Nine, the, a, a theoretical position for Planet Nine. If they actually knew where Planet Nine was... Um, that would be news, but it's just a theoretical position. A whole lot more. There are videos and screenshots and a lot more details. So if you're curious about Luminos, you can go to wobbleworks.com and find the Luminos app on the App Store. Thanks to Luminos and Wobbleworks for sponsoring Liftoff once again. So today we're going to talk about small satellites, which are both adorable and I think really <laughs> fascinating. Uh, we're joined by uh, our very special guest, Glenn Feisman. Glenn, how are you? I am fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, let's let's just dive on in. What what is this all about? Small satellites, CubeSats. What are these things? What are these things good for? What are they doing? Uh, who's behind them? Kind of what's the lay of the land? And why are they so cute? That would be my oh, follow so, up. Why so, are they so adorable? So, okay, so they're adorable, but you know what? So I'll get into how they're even more adorable. Uh, satellites. But uh, the idea was, how do you take um, something that's very expensive, very time-consuming, and very difficult, and make it reproducible, small, fast, and cheap? And so, uh, professor of uh, aerospace, uh, I think we're talking over 15 years now, I think, he and a few other people over time worked to develop this standard called CubeSat, which is a 10-centimeter cube as a single module, and you can stack three of them in one way and two in another. And their idea was they could convince um, uh, launch vehicles, like existing missions, ostensibly to put special launchers on and have these CubeSats be like super stripped down. Like they can only do certain things. They can only have certain payloads. They would fit into the standard format. And so you'd push out your main payload, like a billion-dollar satellite or something, uh, make sure that's out, and then these loaders would Boo, pew, pew, spit out <laughs> CubeSats. Uh, and it would give engineering students, aerospace students, and academic uh, researchers, even small companies, the potential to be doing experimentation, get stuff in orbit. And it could be fast because these would not have to be scheduled years in advance. It could be advanced. It could be cheap, like in the millions of dollars or less per one U or one unit of cube. And um, it would just give people the opportunity to get stuff into space. Um I've talked to scientists who have spent, you know, sometimes they work 10 or 15 years on, say, a space mission, and then it goes up and either their components fail, or I talked to this one guy who was developing cameras at a NASA subcontractor. He said he'd had, I think, five missions in which his cameras either were on missions that blew up or they were never activated, and finally Curiosity landed and he had a ton of cameras on Curiosity. So it's a really exciting format, and I don't think initially it was thought to take off that fast, and now people are very excited about um, CubeSat, and it's been growing uh, just as a platform, a standardized platform, but also small satellites in general um, that are not in the like 500-pound or bigger range, but like in the couple hundred pound or smaller. So... I, I'm curious. One of the things when I hear about tiny satellites that I wonder is, is this about um, is this about being able to get tiny satellites into space more cheaply on rockets? Or is this about kind of like volume of setting up one rocket with a whole like 
are they are we buying these in bulk? Is that the, <laughs> is that the thing that makes them exciting? Is that they all kind of ride together on the bus into space as opposed to you know driving a big limo? Or is it that they're um, able to shoot up on you know teeny teeny tiny rockets instead of big hulking rockets? It's, it's all those things. That's what's so exciting about it is that like the it's very hard to get stuff into space as you guys know. It's really hard to get into space and the anything that makes it easier, cheaper, and faster is good. And oh, so here's the 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 trend that makes sense when we talk about launch vehicles is, you know, what can you put in a 10 centimeter cube or in a lot of the formats now, a lot of people are doing 10 by 10 by 30 centimeters. That's, you know, it's really tiny. What can you do with it? Well, 15 years ago, you couldn't do much, but now you can like put a phone in there and you have a supercomputer in orbit, right? Just one phone. I mean, you know, you did a bigger radio, you need a bigger battery, some other things. So the capabilities have been scaling with the growth of the smartphone market. So originally this was kind of like, well, it's a, you know, maybe we'll do some experimentation with it. It's a way to do things. And as the ability to get micro components that are super powerful and cheap have grown and to, um, to, you know, produce stuff that is not bespoke. You're not, you know, building a billion dollar operation to make one tiny thing. Um, that has created a market to put more of them into space, which is creating more of a launch vehicle opportunity. So there's several companies working on very cheap CubeSat or SmallSat oriented launches where they'll go up and they might carry like, forget the numbers, I think it's dozens. Like they might have a bunch loaded. They might have some small satellites in different formats plus um, a bunch of CubeSats, as well as these secondary launch things that are used almost like, like when you put up a full-size satellite that weighs, you know, I don't know, some of these weigh like 1,500 pounds. You have to put ballast on there. So they're actually putting weight to balance the thing anyway in the payload, the capsule part, right? So this replaces payload or this places a ballast as additional money uh, that commercial operators can uh, can make, uh, you know, because it's just more fees they can collect for what would have just been empty space or ballast. And uh, NASA gets to further its missions because it gets to do more and on its missions where it's paying for commercial providers or, or military launching rockets, they're uh, requiring that there be CubeSat space um, available, which lets them then underwrite fundamental research and provide opportunities to academics to get stuff up as well. So it's this incredible virtuous thing. So there should be there are, there's a bunch of companies working on this and there should be like CubeSat only and SmallSat only launches happening at some point. It's, you know, it's always next year. And a lot of these companies have been kind of ticking along with, with approaches. Um, there's some vehicles that will be, uh, good for small, for like middle sized satellites will also carry smaller ones. And then there'll be these secondary payloads as well. So, uh, right now there's still apparently some constraint with how many you can get up at once, um, you know, in a given year, but that could wind up being, uh, you know, in a year or two, it could be that you could, boost like a thousand CubeSat um, in a year, maybe even more. I mean, that's the, that's been said for a couple of years, like two years ago, I was writing a big story about this for The Economist. And the estimate was within a couple of years, you'd be able to put a thousand or more up in a year. And now it's you know probably still in the few hundred range, maybe next year, uh, but it's still growing too. What are What are some examples of things that people are doing with this technology? Well, some of it is just pure, like one test experimentation. Like, can we do this thing, right? Can we establish a downlink from something that's designed like this? Um, NASA did this great set of experiments that are still ongoing that are not quite uh, skunk works, uh, but it was called PhoneSat. And uh, the latest PhoneSat mission, I think it was in March or May, went up. Uh, and they're um, super cheap. You basically you take an Android phone, like stock Android phone, you put a new radio on it, you modify the firmware, 
or the operating system and you you stick a battery in it and you throw it in a cube. And that's I mean it's not all of it, but that's a lot of the project is just making an off-the-shelf phone be something you put into orbit and it's wow. really cool and so some of the stuff they're testing is like can we throw that up there how will it survive um, they've done stuff where they put clusters of them or little constellations to see if they could communicate together um, so the and you know like one of the projects that's going to go up as part of this uh there's a new initiative um I mean these were all underway but nasa announced uh on uh november 7th this kind of a small sat week. It's like, hey, it's not shark week, it's small sat week. Um, and they're talking about small sats <laughs> all week. But what they, uh, they kind of group together a bunch of Earth Sciences projects that are CubeSat, mostly CubeSat uh, based, and one is a slightly sm- a larger uh, satellite format. And one of them is uh, called uh, Ice Cube, which is a great name. <laughs> and it's, it's been around for a bit, it's been waiting for a launch cycle, it's going to go, oh, oh so this is cool. You can, some CubeSats are being sent in resupply missions to the International Space Station, the astronauts unpack them, and then there are these chutes on board in the JAXA, uh, JAXA components that shoot the satellites out from the ISS. <laughs> <laughs> There's NanoRacks is the, the commercial firm. Well, that, that's what I was going to say is that what, what, a lot of what you were talking about, about using phone tech and the question about using we, – we've – uh, one of the places where technology has advanced the, the the most in the last 10 years is in the miniaturization that's been driven by the smartphone market. And I remember when I went to the uh, last shuttle mission that one of the one of the things that was on board were, were these uh, were these nano racks, and it was basically oh, yeah. just like iPhones and and stuff and and Android phones that they were using to run experiments. And the whole idea was they're so light, and that matters when you're shooting things into space, and they're so powerful. And so this sounds very similar, where it's like our technology on Earth of what a smartphone needs is actually actually drives a lot of advantages in space because you can get a lot of technology, a lot of power up there um, without a lot of weight. Yeah. It, so, oh yeah. Well, let me, yeah. So the this this ice cube thing is going to go up that way. It's going to go up through a resupply mission, and then it will get pushed out through one of these chutes. And so, um, ice cube <laughs> is, uh, it's trying to detect cloud ice, but it's like a it's a small experiment. It's in one. Uh, you know, CubeSat format, and it will help them figure out whether this new method works without having dropped, say, a hundred million dollars on it. Um, there's a bunch of missions. Uh, so, some of them are. So, a lot of stuff has been just experimentation. Um, there's a lot of propulsion tests. There's some really wild stuff going on with like, you take iodine and you superheat it to a plasma, and there's like a magnetic induct. It's like I don't remember the details well enough, but there's all kinds of cool things about how you can get propulsion into a into a cube, into like one cube, basically, that would be worthwhile enough because these things typically go into low Earth orbit and they often have no propulsion. Uh, and so if they don't, if they can't, uh, if they don't get inserted perfectly, they won't stay up for very long. A lot of CubeSats will uh, fall back in the atmosphere within just a few weeks or months. Um, some have stayed up for years and some are designed to get inserted into an orbital position so they can stay up for several years. Um, the, uh, the, the one project that I loved was, I think it was two or three years ago now, it was a satellite that opened up and pushed out some smaller satellites, one of which opened up and pushed out a smaller satellite. <laughs> it was, you know, um, Matryoshka dolls. Cause there's, so CubeSat is a nano satellite, which is, um, typically the, uh, so one kilogram to 10 kilogram range. There are Pico satellites, which are, I think it's a hundred grams to one kilogram. And there are Bempto satellites. So, um, which are even one tenth smaller. Uh, there's a project called Kicksat. Have you guys heard of Kicksat? Mm-mm. 
Well, it, it had a little popularity a couple of years ago because they did a launch attempt. Uh, it was partly crowdfunded. And then NASA, they they got a slot in a program NASA runs to effectively underwrite uh, CubeSat experiments for academia. And uh, they got boosted up and then they had a failure. So they weren't, the spring wasn't able to pop open, but it was full of these tiny femto satellites that were like the size of a Band-Aid. And they had a computer on it and a radio and a antenna that popped out when they were released. And they could transmit back to Earth messages that people had paid to have put on them, <laughs> like one small message. So it was going to push out, I forget, like a hundred something of these little leaps or like seeds um, out of this larger uh, uh, 3U CubeSat. Um, and so there's another kickstart. They, they, so they weren't able. They got into orbit. They weren't able to uh, to shoot the the uh, seeds out. But uh, that's actually uh, in a stage now. They're trying to get uh, the second version of that uh, up and done. Um, and then some of what NASA was announcing uh, in this new initiative is like actual production work. So um, uh, Cygnus is this one system that's going to measure the insides of um, – hurricane, like the eye of the hurricane, how fast winds are. And it's eight satellites that will work in concert. And then uh, at some point in the future, this thing called tropics, that is uh, like a cyclone and evaporation storm tracking system that's 12 CubeSats that will again work in concert um, and all just be orbiting and overlapping paths all the time. I like how this is this is like uh I mean Kicksat is is blending issues because it was crowdfunded but it's also crowdsourcing almost. I mean what the what the uh, NASA page says about Kicksat is it's ISS science for everyone. The mm-hmm. idea that you're you're increasing access to space research by having by lowering these barriers having these smaller items that are that are able to go up there instead of just having the access be for, you know, billion dollar missions. Yeah, that's the whole idea is that these things can be like right now, the estimates I've seen is for uh, if you're trying to do it like personally, like this is a project of you or a company, you could spend between like one to three million dollars to get like to fully construct and get launched a, a CubeSat, like a one U CubeSat, maybe on the higher end of that. Um, and NASA uh, budgets, they award grants of two to four million dollars for uh, in their academic program. And like the Ice Cube project, I think falls into that, where that includes like launch costs and everything else, even if they have to purchase it on a on a or sort of their percentage of the cost of uh, putting it up. Um, but the, uh, you know, so our friend Elon Musk, he wants to get launch costs down to as little as I think it's like a is it ten thousand dollars a kilogram is his ultimate goal. I think right now, if you buy in bulk, essentially, it's like a hundred thousand dollars a kilogram for a very large launch. Um, although it can be somewhat higher. So if you could pay ten thousand dollars a kilogram, and CubeSat is a standard format, and they're launching thousands of them a year, then conceivably you could be like a you know a Kickstarter project and buy everything off the shelf. Um, you know you can buy Kickstarter or CubeSat components that are uh, manufactured to spec. Um, you can get all this stuff and assemble it, and maybe you could put something into space for like thirty to fifty thousand dollars and have it do something uh, meaningful. So. That is, I mean, that's why I get so excited about it. It gets it down to like the, um, you know, uh, muscle car range. Like, you know, well, I could restore that that cherry car I've got, or I could put something into orbit. Yeah, I think the thing that's most exciting to me is the the doors that opens for, like you said, academic institutions for for research institutions to have a very, you know, simple piece of tech, but to be able to to conduct their own research in a way that is is feasible you know opening doors to scientists and to students who would could only dream of this sort of access in the past 
Yeah, and it becomes sort of, um, you know, not in a bad way, like disposable. Like if your mission fails, you've only put a few years into it maybe, and it might be possible for you to make another one of the same thing you already did. In some cases, people are assembling uh, multiple versions of the same small satellite, um, especially in academia, because different people get involved in it. So they might have backups or something that's very similar they use for testing that they could then ramp up and go through the full process necessary to certify it to uh, to go on a launch vehicle. Uh, but um, it's no longer like we put everything into this one basket and the basket blew up. So that was 10 years of my college, uh, you know, my postgraduate right. career done. Yeah. And now I'm going to work at uh, fast food. Um I mean, I did hear, I heard that a lot from academics when I was doing research about how this just excites people so much because you could be an undergraduate and by the time you go through graduate school, if you stay someplace, you could have something in orbit. Like that's, you know, outrageous and, and un, un, uh, has not happened before in aerospace, really. Yeah, I was struck by that. I met a couple of the kids uh, during the, the Falcon 9 that was lost last oh, summer. Oh, yeah. And they had like a little earthworm experiment that was on the Antares that blew up earlier that year. So it's like oh. these kids were now rebuilding it for the third time. And they were like in different schools now because they did it as like an elementary school class. And now they were going to be entering middle school. And like even on that, that small scale, you know, seeing that if you put you know, effort into something, it can, it can all go wrong well out of your hands. And we we're talking about Juno earlier in the show, how, you know, a decade of planning and now it's down to some like valves that don't behave appropriately. Um, But if you can bring the price down and launches become more reliable, then this does become within reach of many more people. Well, it's also the redundancy, right? As we were just talking about, like stuff blows up, like we don't have perfect reliability for, you know, it's not a 99.9% success rate on getting stuff up. And a lot of stuff's going on the uh, the Tineper rockets or these old Russian rockets that uh, had a pretty good track record for a while and then lost submissions. Um, You know, the commercial providers have had some issues, even though they're... And, you know, generally uh, doing very well, like it's very exciting where everything's going and everything is um, moving towards reusable uh, launch uh, platforms and all that. But um, like, uh, you know, Planet Labs, it has uh, (laughs) – I went to have – when Jason was still at IDG, I went to have an after-work drink with you, remember? And I was like, oh, it's just across the street looking at satellites. (laughs) Because <laughs> Planet Labs, this is the great part. So not only – so oh gosh, so many things I want to talk about. One, one of the things is you don't need to have NASA clean room facilities to make these. These aren't um, – they don't get hardened and made to the same standards of stuff that's going to be in space for you know, 15, 20 years and has to survive a lot more because they are meant to be usually for short-term experiments or if it's a longer-term experiment, they're made in duplicate with overlapping uh, usage and like constellations. So Planet Labs has, they are approaching a hundred satellites in orbit. No one has ever, no one company has ever had anything like that. And they'll have 200 at some point. Um, they launch a dozen or, or a couple dozen at a time. And uh, they are making them in an ordinary office building across from IDG headquarters in San Francisco in a, I forget what they call it. It was like a, uh, uh, like clean enough room. like they have you know negative air pressure and other stuff but you know people wearing bunny suits but they don't have to worry that you know a speck of dust less than you know 10 microns will get in and that dramatically reduces costs and the the you know what costs so much in space missions i'm sure you guys talked about this over the over your episodes is that um it's redundancy right and resiliency so if you 
going to put $200 million into something, like, I don't know, 50 million of that might be the systems that make the main mission not fail when something goes wrong. And if you're going to make something that's small or you're going to make 10 or 50 of them, then each individual unit does not – Just have, you have to get a yield. So they're even talking on this NASA briefing call about the uh, – about all this earth science work, they said, you know, well, they're so cheap and easy. If we lose a couple, it's fine. We'll just send some more up. And I mean, think of that NASA saying that, like that is antithetical to the nature of NASA. Um, but they're, they've gotten the religion because they can iterate so quickly. Planet Labs is in, I forget which generation, after just a few years of setting up their first birds, they have um, advanced the technology dramatically of what's in the satellites they're setting up because they don't have a five-year or ten-year cycle in development. They have like a a software or you know Silicon Valley hardware style revision cycle that they can then put into space, and that, nothing like that has ever occurred with space uh, orbiting missions before. Where do you think this this goes in the future? Where do you, what do you think? Uh, what doors does this open for? Uh, not only research, but I mean, is something that that we're going to see NASA move into? Is something that we're going to see other governments move into? Like, how far do you think this can go? I think there's an incredible potential for better understanding. Like, Earth sciences is a huge thing, right? Because you can better understand the Earth the better you measure it. And um, uh, you know, for instance, there's these two satellites called uh, Grace that are. <laughs> it's a, it's a terrible problem because they're nearing the end of their lifetime, and the Grace. Um, follow-on project. Uh, th- this is how acronyms get made, by the way. Grace follow-up is what it was originally called. And they're like, F you. Maybe we'll call it follow-on. <laughs> um, but these two satellites, uh, they're relatively small. They track each other and they can measure by uh, measuring gravitational variation on the Earth. They can figure out between the two of them, like small changes in elevation of land all around the Earth. And it's been a huge uh, aid to climate model uh, creation and prediction. And, um, but these are the two. And if they die before Grace FO gets launched, which is well behind schedule, then we would lose an incredible continuity of data. So one thing is it gives NASA the opportunity to throw stuff up there that, um, may not be as sensitive or might be multi, you know, they might have backups basically. Like, uh, we're talking about the size of these things. Like, what can you do in a smartphone? You, you might have an instrument that is one-tenth or one-hundredth or one-thousandth as sensitive or with the same resolution as an instrument in a billion-dollar satellite. But maybe that's enough for a purpose, especially for a backup purpose. So it gives NASA some uh, some coverage, and it gives uh, you know space agencies and, and climatologists and uh, folks monitoring climate change, all those things, um, some real backup. On the commercial side, there's a ton of stuff you can do in low Earth orbit in terms of communications, even if you're not relaying data. Like one project that a group in uh, San Francisco, it's another satellite maker, it's working on a small scale, they want to have a uh, like coverage all around the Earth that measures boat transponders because the boat transponders are on like mo- I forget the number of craft, but like everything that's at sea has one, and uh, if they um, they have to use expensive satellite links to be tracked while at sea, and so a lot of boats are not, and so the knowledge of where they are is is minimal while they're in the open water. However, the signals are are um, strong enough, even though they can only reach like some number of miles over sea, they can be picked up by satellites in low Earth orbit. So you could suddenly overnight have a real time map of every boat in the world um, for you know some cost, but not like a billion dollars again, maybe in the tens of millions of dollars range, or maybe as one 
function on a constellation platform. So some companies are talking about launching um, satellites that allow, you know, tiny satellites and a ton of them that can be run as like Amazon, you know, uh, web services, you know, Hey, I need a, I need to run this uh, global operation. Can I buy this much time on your satellites? We're like, sure. We have all these instruments. You can use these instruments and we test it all on ground. Then we upload like a mainframe time-sharing program. <laughs> we uplink your program and we run it on, you know, 50 satellites that are orbiting the earth. Uh, other thing, so many things. Other thing is uh, there's already a lunar experiment uh, that's underway, the lunar flashlight, and there are two CubeSats committed to go in a future Mars mission as well. So um, it's not they don't have to be CubeSats, but the idea of uh, the, that science fiction notion that is coming true of like having clusters of satellites that'll span between the stars for exploration, right? But they're you know they could be insect sized from that uh, X Files episode, right? Um, but um, thinking about that, you could have instead of having one monolithic lander that crashes when it hits Mars, you could have thousands of devices of varying sizes and capabilities that fan out and you don't have monolithic catastrophic catastrophic single point failure. And I think that's what's most exciting about this from the exploratory side is that you don't put all your eggs in one basket and um, and have all these capabilities. Um, and one more thing, <laughs> sorry, so many things. The one other thing is this is what they're talking about. Uh, NASA's talking about with uh, the Cygnus project and with uh, Tropics and some others is some things you either need one big thing that measures in a really comprehensive way, or you can have a bunch of little things and combine the information from them and you get nearly as good a picture, not an image, but, you know, like a, a picture of measurements as if you had spent all that money. So you might be able to build, you know, throw up, uh, you know, $25 million satellites and have the effect of a $500 million project with the extra advantage that if one of them goes bad, you just send another up. It feels to me a little bit like the personal computer revolution of the 70s, where all of a sudden you go from room-sized computers to lots and lots of little computers everywhere. And they're not as powerful, no, but <laughs> they're a lot cheaper and there are a lot more of them. And it feels a little bit like that, where it's sort of like the D monolithing of space right to be able to yeah. say little stuff too little we can do little stuff now and not every not everything needs to be a big thing and that and that allows you to have a lot more variation in what's out there it's totally and, and like there's all these requirements of like power and mass and other things right and mass is expensive and power is expensive because it takes mass a bigger battery takes has more mass and that costs more to get up and it's more effort so every like you know, twofold improvement in computational power that you need in space, if that reduces the mass, or every twofold improvement of sensor ability in a smaller form factor. You know, if it's if it's one quarter as much mass and it does the same thing, then you have just dramatically reduced your cost in getting it in up there and or making duplicates of it. So um yeah, I felt I felt like CubeSats are the smartphones of space. Uh, and then they literally are sometimes made from smartphones. In the future everybody will get a satellite of their own. I, I think that's my prediction now. I thought about it. <laughs> it's everybody funny. gets a satellite. You're your personal satellite, do what you want with it. You know, the big problem is um, uplink and downlink is that there's not uh, like like there are yeah. various ground stations and people uh, you can use uh, software to find radio uh, to tune in to uh, use, you know, relatively off the shelf like USB components. And it's pretty cool. But 
uh, it's really hard to get data move from even from low Earth orbit back down. So that's the next big thing. There are people talking about creating, you know, a, a land in space. <laughs> yeah, that, I was going to say you want you almost want the Internet of Space yeah. where um, all the little CubeSats talk to a communications relay that that handles the traffic and uh, and and then downlink to Earth and do it that way and just put an Internet up there just because, you know, we we've ruined Earth with the Internet. Let's do it with space, too. Why not? Let me, uh, two words for you: space Wi-Fi. Mm, nice. All three. of your all of your favorite things are coming together. <laughs> it's, yeah, as I know, isn't that amazing? But um, it's just so fun. I get so excited about it because I felt like I was. Um, it's not like space was in reach and we were kids, and it isn't now. But it's more like uh, I used to get very. I, I feel like the current generation of NASA exploration, especially, but also ESA and, and other missions, has reignited my love for space because it's so much more approachable. Everything's not locked away. And, you know, the fact that they do, like, live feed of curiosity photos as they're decoded and and brought up and the thumbnails that, the, that are being uploaded and getting images from Pluto as they're slowly, slowly coming to us. And, you know, I, I've got to subscribe to a Twitter account that's like pieces of Pluto or something. And so every once in a while in the middle of my Twitter feed is like a beautiful high resolution part of Pluto. And I just, it makes the world seem better to know that that kind of exploration is available to everyone. And the CubeSat is like the flip side of that, where we could all be part of, even if it's, you know, you contribute to a crowdfunding campaign, not necessarily building them yourselves, um, or the notion that our kids could be, you know, my older boy, same age as Jason's younger kid, could, uh, identical, in fact, could be, um, go to college and if they were interested in aerospace they could like be putting up satellites while they're in college like yeah oh i started this project I'm a freshman did a crowdfunding campaign i'm a junior it's up uh yeah it's in low earth orbit right now that's astonishing and it's yeah. super cool glenn thank you so much for joining us today this has been a lot of fun and i, I learned learned some things about tiny satellites uh, i didn't learn why they're so adorable but i can get the idea i get the idea everything's small is cute thank you for letting me come on and, and talk uh, and like just cavell about something that i just i can't I like technology in general. I've been writing about technology for years. I'm kind of an early adopter of stuff. There's something about this that excites me. It's the most exciting thing in technology to me right now is small satellites because it's just so interesting and everything is everything we're doing on Earth has an application to them too. So where can people find you if they want to know more about you and stuff that you write? Oh, well, uh, I'll have a story out about the NASA announcement in The Economist this week, which has no bylines. So you can't know that I wrote it, but I did. It's 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 not a secret, but everyone listening knows. Um, so, send us that link <clears throat> and we'll sneak it into the show notes, but we'll deny everything. I will. I will. And uh, I'm, uh, I have a, a blog at glog, G-L-O-G dot G-L-E-N-N-F dot com. And if you're really a glutton for punishment, you can follow me on Twitter at G L E N N F. Yeah. Don't follow Glenn. Don't follow me. It's Twitter. a really bad don't, idea. Don't do bad it. Idea. All right. Well, we'll be back in a fortnight with another episode of Liftoff. Um, but until then, uh, you can find me at Jay Snell on Twitter and uh, sixcolors.com is uh, also a place where I am. And Stephen is ISMH on Twitter. And you can also read his stuff at 512pixels.net. Um, and that's it for this edition of Liftoff. Until next time, bye everybody. Say goodbye, Stephen. Adios. Adios.